This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. We have a special guest here with us today. This is Dr. Alan Strange. Dr. Alan Strange, how are you? I'm very well. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you here with us. Now, Dr. Strange is a professor here at Mid-America Reformed Seminary in Dyer, Indiana, where he teaches church history, as well as apologetics, various other courses. You did your PhD through Wales, if I recall? That's right. Okay. Who did you do your dissertation on? I did my dissertation on Charles Hodge, his doctrine of the spirituality of the church, uh, which I think is a better nuanced doctrine than that of some of the Southern Brethren. And I think it has a lot of obvious relevance <laughs> oh, yeah. to the uh, to our current times, which which have some political uh, interest, shall we say. <laughs> we would love to be able to speak with you more on that in another episode yes, at some that point. Would be fun. It would be a that lot be of fun. fun. Coming soon, Hodgecast. I also did my MDiv at Westminster, but the one out east. <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> I hear you have a vicarious anointing from Van Til. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do indeed. Was it yeah, Van Til via Murray via Frame, was it? <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. John Frame, uh, it's an interesting story how he ended up laying hands on me in my ordination, uh, but he did so. Uh, he was, uh, among others, uh, Dick Gaffin gave me the charge, and St. Clair Ferguson preached the sermon, so I had a, a pretty good lineup there. <laughs> so you are an o- strong, uh, well-known, and well-loved OPC man from uh, in the midst of two URC students. <laughs> so you'll Well, I, I love the URC. I feel very at home because, of course, uh, I'm one of the co-editors along with Derek Vandermeulen of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Mm-hmm. So we worked together on that, So uh, and being here... I've worked a lot with the URC, preach in URC churches all the time, so I'm very committed to strengthening the ties uh, between the OPC and the URC. I think they're pretty natural ties if you really look at the, the whole situation, particularly the historic Dutch influence on the OPC and the commitment mm. to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Voss and Bavink, we love them. <laughs> <laughs> Just as we love Machen, Van Til, among yes, others. We do. Yeah. Yeah, and, and speaking on your work on editing the Trinity Psalter hymnal, now of course there are you know, reasons of uh, your love for the church as not just a professor but a churchman in which you engaged in that, but you're also a lover of the arts. Oh, very much. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And we uh, we tried to have this book be one that reflects both the truth about who God is in all of its richness and fullness, as well as the beauty or the glory, to use that preferred Bavink term, <laughs> for the Lord, because uh, we worship him, don't we, in the beauty of holiness. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that is uh, precisely what we want to get at here today, uh, why we have brought you on, uh, not only as a lover of the arts, but one who loves the Lord, one who uh, rejoices in uh, not only things that are true, not only things that are good, but on things that are beautiful. We want to get a little bit more into that, I guess, on what beauty is. 
So today we're uh, we're looking at uh, Herman Bovink's essays on uh, religion, science, and society, particularly on his article that he has there on aesthetics. Now, this is a topic that maybe gets pushed a little bit to the side, uh, in my opinion, at least more recently. There, there has been some work done by some scholars such as Jonathan King, among others, that are looking at thinking on the topic of a theological aesthetic. We're not going to get necessarily too deep in the weeds on that today so much as we want to, again, more of a simple understanding of what is aesthetics. What are aesthetics? Why are they important? You know, and uh, especially with an eye to how Bobbing spoke of this a little over 100 years ago. So everyone seems to appreciate beauty in one way or another. We have this popular phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But I guess the question within those sort of statements is, what actually is beauty? Do we understand what beauty is? We're, we're all quick to say that things are beautiful, but what are we talking about when we say that something is beautiful? Yeah, one thing uh, that your your listeners might find helpful in this because this is a this is a very complex and mm-hmm. <laughs> highly uh, developed topic. It, you know, it, it is the case. Let me just say this: you mentioned that that as Christians, what we might call that fourth branch of philosophy doesn't get as much attention. Obviously, the first branch, metaphysics or ontology; the second branch, epistemology; the third branch, ethics gets a lot of our attention. And because we have a revelational epistemology, we believe we know what we know, not simply by the autonomous use of our minds, that would be rationalism, such as you have with Plato, Mm -hmm. or simply by looking at the world uh, and understanding things empirically, a bit of Aristotle. Uh, We're not rationalists, we're not empiricists. We believe that we have the truth by revelation, we spend a great deal of time on those first three areas and not quite as much uh, on the fourth, on beauty. And uh, there is a little book, I think, that would help your Mm. listeners. Uh, This isn't strictly related to Bavink, but there's a series that's published by Crossway called Reclaiming the Christian Intellectual Tradition. And Paul Munson and Joshua Drake have a book called Art and Music, A Student's Guide, and it's just 112 pages. And they really deal with these issues. And that that series deals with that. And what they say is, let's begin with beauty, because it's what makes art, art. Um, And of course, you may quibble over the meaning of beauty, but they say, ordinary people have always known that the reason we draw and sing is to please viewers with beautiful drawings and hearers with beautiful songs. And they go on to talk about the different conceptions of beauty. And of course, they mention, obviously, they come to the the 19th century, the late 19th century adage, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And that's among us today, not understood to be a worldview, which it is. It's a postmodern conception. So what, what they're arguing in this book is it, even Christians will say beauty is in the eye of the beholder as if that's just a truism, hmm. uh, when in fact it's a reaction of more recent decades of coming in terms of postmodernism in which any objective standard of beauty has been displaced 
by an utterly subjective conception of it. Hmm. And of course, the notion that there is no objective standard of beauty, Christians would never say there's no objective standard of truth. They would not say there's no ex- objective standard of behavior. We we would af- hmm. we would affirm that, and we really shouldn't here be total subjectivists. There's a subjective aspect of of everything, but mm-hmm. so is there an objective aspect. And of course, we would say God is our standard for this. Mm. Now, we're speaking on beauty here. We've used a little bit of the, you know, uh, some of the technical term of aesthetic. Right. Um, early in the essay from Bobbing, he goes and uh, makes a reference to 18th century philosophers following Leibniz on the employment of the term uh, aesthetic. And he, he essentially says that what was meant by this term is the observing of beauty, the harmony and completeness of an observed thing, or uh, aesthetics as a theory of beauty, the art of thinking beautifully, or the art of taste. Would you find that an adequate definition of like of aesthetics, or is there something maybe more we should add to that, a theory of beauty, thinking beautifully? Bavink, of course, is not saying what this should be. He's trying to describe... Right a post-enlightenment development of that. And I think that's pretty on the mark. The classical view of beauty is that, I've just mentioned a postmodern view, which Mm -hmm. is totally subjective. Uh Uh, Over Uh against that, the classical view of beauty is that it is objective, manifesting perfect form, proportion, symmetry. And in such a worldview, beauty becomes the purpose of life. And aesthetics provides the basis for ethics. Now, we have a problem with that, and Mm -hmm. he has a problem with mm-hmm. that. That goes to a kind of aestheticism. That's what dominates in the classical world. Form is made absolute. And you can think of how, uh, again, uh, Munson says in his book, like the media bewitched teen starving herself before the mirror, we devote our lives to the pursuit of some created formal standard and see that the result is not beautiful at all, but wicked and ugly. So that hmm. there's a problem with that kind of aestheticism, even as there's a problem with the skepticism of postmodernism. Hmm. We don't we don't want either of those. But yes, he's right to sense that in the post Enlightenment era, you think of the aestheticism of an Oscar Wilde who is quite an immoral man, and it tracks with that, that famous phrase, the, the French don't care what you do as long as you pronounce it correctly. <laughs> See, that's a kind of aestheticism. Uh, we don't want that, on the one hand, that this kind of making a fetish of beauty. In the fashion world, you can see how that's done. On the other hand, you've seen in particularly postmodern art in which God is rejected and chaos is embraced. Mm. You've seen this chaotic expression that really is almost a glorification of the ugly. You have these extremes, and of course we're called back to a revelational biblical pattern of a proper balancing between the objective and the subjective. I think it's really interesting you bring that up because if we look at oh about the last century or so, there does seem to be a real shift in art and in creative expression towards the bizarre and the perhaps even the deviant where the idea with art is to press boundaries and to even make things deliberately that are disturbing to people. Hmm. Yeah, shock value. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, Andrew. Uh, of course, I've, I've noted this in my many, many trips to the museums as I belong to museums and trips to the orchestra and the opera. One of the things that I have noted with respect to, say, the, the orchestra is that um, we seem to get to a point in the 90s 
and the early aughts where so much new music, when, when there was a, a newly commissioned piece that was being played by the orchestra, um, I remember being with some good friends and my wife and I, after it was over, uh, the fellow uh, from the other couple looked at me and we had heard this music that was extraordinarily depressing and dark and confusing and chaotic, uh, not beautiful at all. And uh, he said, how are we supposed to respond to this? And I said, I think the only question remains is why we don't all go and throw ourselves off the Ben Franklin Bridge. This was in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. We were listening to the Philadelphia Orchestra at that time. And it really was. It was a question of, you know, what do you do after hearing that? Uh, You're certainly, there's certainly no sense of beauty. In fact, there was a revulsion. And I'll never forget at one of these concerts I was at once, we were in an area where there were a, a number of graduate music students sitting. And the composer, as is often the case when these new pieces are played, the composer was there. And when the conductor went off stage and came back for the first curtain call, the composer accompanied him. And there was very light applause. The audience didn't really care for it. And this one of these music students sitting in our area yelled, if I may say this on your program, I hope I can, mm-hmm. it's crap. And then the audience started applauding that comment. <laughs> I've never quite seen anything like it. It was embarrassing for the composer. But I mean, it was really it was really a difficult piece to have to sit through. So yeah, we've gone from in the classical world having a kind of fetish and making an idol out of our our particular definition of beauty. Uh, to a kind of embracing of this. But what I've noticed here at the symphony is in the recent decade or, or decade or two, there's been kind of a turn from that. It seems like they reached the bottom of that. Hmm. And I've noted in the last decade especially, a lot of the newer composed music, it has a, a recognizable melody hmm. and the harmony that accompanies it in the strings, in the winds, in the brass actually has some beauty in it. So it's an interesting thing. I, you, you wonder if some ways we've bottomed out on that and people start saying, you know, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> I want to get back to the post, uh, this kind of postmodern and uh, contemporary perception of art in a little bit here. So I think that, that's a very, I mean, that, that's a very good point you raise. In building on some kind of the, uh, a little bit of the background of the idea of aesthetics or beauty, there's a lot of questions that have have popped up over time that philosophers since the classical period have been dealing with things of even just, you know, if there's a variety of what might be considered beautiful, is there a highest degree or objective standard of beauty? Is fondness for beauty innate or developed? Yes. Why? It, yes. <laughs> well, in uh, among in that same way where we say, yes, you know, uh, why would this then even be an important topic for Christians? Uh, why bother with a theological aesthetic? Why isn't that we're just content with, say, something like truth or with morality? Oftentimes, you might come across a church where, say, there's more moralistic preaching at times, even a concern with uh, personal piety. Others might throw very heavy on the information, doctrinal, luxury kind of preaching. We don't really get a lot of aesthetical preaching, though, do we? Why should Christians care? Well, it's interesting that you say that. I think a well-crafted sermon is a beautiful thing. Mm because it sets forth God in all of his glory and Christ as central in that as the supreme revelation of God. And, uh, of course, on the one hand, right, 
Isaiah tells us that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. So there was there was something about Christ in his humiliation, in his weakness, that in entering into our condition, part of that is a kind of lack of beauty. Sin isn't beautiful. And insofar as he took that upon himself uh, judicially and, and bore our sin and paid its penalty, there's something profoundly the opposite of beauty. And yet, there's also, I mean, the cross is at once, it's the, the irony of the cross we often speak of. The cross is at once the ugliest thing ever because man is, seeks to put God to death. And at the same time, of course, what we see, as Owen put it, in the death of Christ is the death of death. So the very the very same act might you say reflect on the one sense our part of it our putting him to death is is the ultimate anti beauty and yet his taking the wrath of God for us for our sins is the ultimate beauty so it really is we have a revelational epistemology and so all of our understanding of beauty is revelational either in terms of scripture but mostly more broadly in terms of general revelation and the reason when i said when you asked sort of the nature nurture question we're created in the image of god and so we have both an understanding of beauty we have an intimate relationship we have a capacity for it we have a taste for it but insofar as we're sinful that's perverted it in various ways and people as they move away as people are on the fuller expression of their sinfulness that's where you can get the production of art art which is a field which is dedicated to the expression of beauty and you get anti-beauty in it and it's an expression of our sin. And I don't mean by that it's just that, you know, Bach and Mozart and Beethoven are beautiful. There's all kind of contemporary music that's beautiful. I don't just mean that classical art is beautiful. There's all kind of contemporary art that's beautiful. So it isn't just a particular style, but it's within the genre. It's if you're playing whatever genre you're playing, you know, take jazz or take any number, take various expressions of rock. I mean, you can say within this, you can see, and beauty is in a sense following the rules. That has something to do with it. What rules? Well, the rules that are there in general revelation. I mean, you know, the Pythagorean common, how you how you tune a piano. I mean, this is part of general revelation. What harmonizes is part of general revelation. Now, it's fine to use disharmony for particular purposes, but a piece of unending disharmony is unkind to the ears, is not pleasant to hear. You need a right mixture. But I mean, you find disharmonies, you find interesting kinds of syncopation in Mozart, just to take him as an example. I think it's important in terms of we have an ethics which comes from God, which is both we see in general revelation and we see in scripture. And I would say it's true also for aesthetics. That brings to mind a point that Bobbing raises in uh, pages 254 and 255 of this article, this essay, where he states, uh, In this world, nothing exists by itself. Everything is interrelated. The works we produce have this in common. They are the revelation of our ability, and to that extent, are all art. And he goes on to say, Beauty always awakens in us images, moods, and affections that otherwise would have remained dormant and not even known to us. Beauty thus discloses us to ourselves and also grants us another new glimpse into nature and humanity. 
It deepens, broadens, enriches our inner life, and it lifts us for a moment above the dreary, sinful, sad reality. Beauty also brings cleansing, liberation, revival to our burdened and dejected hearts. So he's, he's very much pinpointing what you're saying there, I believe. Uh, and that, I mean, essentially, that there is a, a spiritual perception when it comes down to it in yes. art. You mentioned contemporary artists. You know, this, this maybe brings a pressing question for uh, us and our listeners. Uh, is listening to Lady Gaga then in regarding her music as art a spiritual perception? Well, I have to <laughs> admit my... Uh, my my uh, i'm not i'm not really informed there but i i i don't i i'm not one who just makes pronouncements i'll say this i was speaking to some people uh, i've learned my lessons about this because i was speaking to some people and i don't know where your listeners are on this and different people people might be surprised to hear me say this but i was i was speaking some years earlier and i just said something customarily dismissive of rap and uh, almost as a genre, saying it's not really music. Well, it isn't music in every sense of the common structure of melody and harmony. And I got challenged by some people, and I've done a little study since, and I understand how it is a proper art form, and I understand how there is good in there. I, I was even able to recognize and to say, this person, in terms of the the particular form, is a good rapper over against this person who's not yeah. such a good rapper. So, I, I mean, I do believe that within contemporary rock music, you can speak about better and less but I'm simply not qualified to speak about Lady Gaga. I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs> well, let's twist the question yes. then a little bit. Uh, this is this is a question that Bob Inc. puts for us on page 256 uh, related, not about Lady Gaga or rap, but uh, he, he asks, is it only the form that counts so that the artist is totally free in his choice of material and may display the most intimate and scandalous as long as it is done in a beautiful manner? Or is beauty essentially bound to content as well as to truth and goodness? And even if it were possible, is it really permissible to break this triad? What he's getting at then is where he asks, is Satan beautiful if he appears as an angel of light? No, I think that's an excellent question. And I think it's one of the mistakes of a certain classical approach or what I called earlier the aestheticism that you get in an Oscar Wilde, uh, that as long as something is done with style, with class, with a certain sort of savoir-faire, to use a French word, right, um, that it's all right. And we would reject that. No, we would say that there is, in fact, an intimate connection uh, and that that which is beautiful must in some sense be true. Let me illustrate it this way. I wrote an article a couple of years ago on Bach and Wagner. I was asked to review uh, books on Johann Sebastian Bach, who not only is one of the inarguably greatest composers of all times, but was a Christian and wrote his music from that viewpoint. He would write uh, Ad Maiorum Dea Glorium to the Greater Glory of God. All throughout the actual manuscripts, you will see difficult places. You will have I, I, a little I, I, which is Juve uh, Yesu, help me, Jesus. He's writing there. Mm. And so he was explicitly writing in this way. And we can see how his music gives glory to God. Richard Wagner was an anti-Semite, was a personally a very miserable sort of individual. But he wrote rather remarkable music. And I say this about that. One does find in Wagner's music, not a positive treatment of the gospel, but an aching ode to its absence. In spite of himself, Wagner tells the truth 
in his music. So it's beautiful, but he tells the truth in spite of himself. Uh, Particularly, I'm thinking of his Ring of the Nibelung. And I say, all that is transcendently there and that the drama cannot bear points to something else, something besides and beyond itself, testifying that all great art tells the truth, either explicitly as in Bach or in spite of itself as in Wagner. And I say this, in listening just now to a superb performance of the immolation scene at the end of the ring, the four operas, this is at the end of the whole thing, I am struck afresh with how full of promise never realized, of something reached for yet never touched, this music is. The wistfulness of the theme and the high strings, joined by the woodwinds then brass, is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It cannot deliver what it promises, but then neither can anything in this world. Only our great God can deliver here and supremely in the world to come. So there can be things in this world that that you think of movies, you think of books that have as their theme some version of the greatest story ever told, which is that, that the world is a mess and needs redeeming. And we could look at great works of art after great works of art. And so, you know, there's a part of them in terms of the antithesis. We know that unbelief is opposed to God and doesn't speak his truth in that sense. But because of common grace, right, we know that in spite of itself, uh, it will often testify in remarkable ways to the truth. And so much of art testifies to our fallen condition and our need for redemption. Now, what's looked to for redemption isn't truly redeeming. Only Mm. Jesus Christ is. Mm. But it shows you, I mean, Lewis talks a lot about how longing gets expressed in art and how longing sort of uh, points us to the ultimate one who alone can fill our longing. And this is, I think, why, why, and I'm sympathetic to this, why Edwards uh, takes up the theme of beauty so much Mm. in in his work uh, as a Protestant theologian in in the 18th century, and I, I think this, you know, this is recognized in some of the work on Bavink. Uh, for Edwards, in both, say, his work on the Trinity, or particularly in his nature of true virtue, he develops this thing because for Edwards, what's primary is not the intellect as it would be for some or the will as it would be for some others, but the affections. And the affections are attracted, have to do with attraction to that which you most love, which is most lovely, which is most beautiful. And so there's a sense in which whatever we think beauty is, ever how we may define it, whether classically or postmodernly, that is that to which we're attracted. So beauty is that. So Edward sees that in terms of God, that the regenerated, renewed soul is attracted to God. And there's different ways you can criticize Edwards on that, but I think that's an interesting aspect of that that use of beauty. And I think it's it's not brought out and developed as much in Bavink, but I think that's also there. That you know, part of beauty is over just against the intellect or the will is the magnetism, if you will. Beauty draws you to itself. I remember as a young man when I was going through the change and before you know whatever girls are kind of and then i remember i remember i was with some some of my brothers literal brothers and i had just gone through this 
and we were out somewhere, and a strikingly beautiful woman walked by, and they were quite all bemused by my reaction because before that, I it just wouldn't have it didn't attract me as much, and and they could see that I was. They said, "Well, we can see what Alan's looking at," and obviously, we talk about the sinful aspect of that, but there's an aspect of that 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 simply has to do with beauty, and you, your eyes are open, and you're being attracted to something, and. Beauty always involves that attraction, you know, you know, the music you like. Why do you keep returning to it? Art is, there are books that we may read for information. There are books that we read for different purposes. But books that really, in, in a sense, are beautiful are, are works of art, are music. We return to it again and again. The music we like. You know, and, and when I go to the, to the art museum in the city, the, the, the Chicago uh, Museum, you know, they're always certain rooms I go into and I look at certain paintings and you might say, well, you've seen those paintings, but I want to see them again. Uh, and it's the same. Your favorite movies, you don't watch them once and never again. We hope you're enjoying this interview with Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history from Mid-America Reform Seminary. We are out of time for this week, so we hope you'll join us again next time for the conclusion. And until then, toad scenes. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.